or of your Bible app or if you've got your computer open and you're on something like YouVersion or Bible Gateway, I want you to turn to the Gospel of John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Now, if you don't know where the book of John is in the beginning of your Bible, there is a table of contents. People worked really hard to put it there. Don't be ashamed to use it. John chapter 12, starting, actually just reading verse 24. Here's what it says. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. It's a pretty important passage of Scripture as we talk about what we're getting into this morning. But let's pause for a word of prayer together. Lord God, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you that you are God and we are not. And I thank you that as we look into your word, we're able to find all amazing kinds of truths to help us lead life. Lord God, I ask you that you would be with us this morning. May we have ears that hear, eyes that see, and hearts that are open to what you have for us this morning. In your holy and precious name I pray. Amen. Well, I'm glad, like I said, that you're here. And as you can tell, I've got a lot of greenery around me. And that's, well, really kind of the point that I want to make this morning. And it's the idea that, that when you plant something, this seed, it needs to go down into the earth. And while it's down into the earth, it goes through this process of germination. And really what actually ends up taking place is that that outer shell of that seed, it has to die in order for the heart of that seed to grow and sprout and produce even more seed as it develops. And that's exactly the kind of notion that Jesus is talking about here. While Jesus is talking specifically about his own death, and what happens in the life of those who are his followers, he really references the idea that he needs to pay a price so that more fruit is going to be able to be born of it. One of the realities of the kingdom of God is that life springs from death. Now, in our passage that we just read this morning, what we know from the passage is that there were these Greeks who came along and and they wanted to talk to Jesus. And so they go to his disciples and you got this chain conversation kind of thing taking place where it goes from disciple to disciple and then over to Jesus. And then even when it gets over to Jesus, you don't see Jesus turning to the Greeks and saying, hey, how you doing? My name is Jesus. You can call me Christ. Uh, that's not what's taking place there. What Jesus does immediately is he goes into this language that seems confusing to people. And he talks about this kernel that needs to go into the ground, that it needs to die in order that more seed is able to be produced. And he's talking about himself, that he has to die like this kernel of wheat. Now, you may be wondering, well, why were these Greek people there? Well, there's this, there's this huge event taking place in Jerusalem at this time. Uh, during the Jewish festivals, especially Passover specifically, uh, Jerusalem was an exciting place. And Jerusalem was believed to be a city that was around 40,000 people. And during the time of the Passover and some of these major festivals, but specifically the Passover, it was believed to have grown up to six times in its size. And so you have roughly around 240,000 people in Jerusalem during this time. That's amazing. I mean, just think about it. Our own community isn't even 40,000 people. But can you imagine if it was? I mean, let's say our community grew six times. What would the streets be like? What would the volume be like? What would the shops be like? There'd be a lot of things. I mean, imagine trying to practice social distancing during that. It's not going to work. It's just not going to work. There were too many things going on, and the Jews were really enthusiastic 
about their faith, and then very specifically about this ritual, this festival of the Passover. You see, the Passover, in the Passover celebrations, they relived an amazing, amazing experience that they had with God that took them all the way back to the book of Genesis, talking about this prophecy that God gave to Abraham saying that they're going to be in bondage for 400 years. And then in that, at the end of that 400 years, God sends Moses to draw Israel out of Egypt. And one of the things that took place there was one of the, well, it was a horrific event, really. It was the firstborn of every home having to die. And what took place there was they, they sacrificed a sheep, and then they put the blood of the sheep over the doorposts in order that the angel of the Lord, the angel of death, would come along and pass over these homes and not take that child. They saw this as God's faithfulness to Israel in this time. And so it was a huge event. It was a monumentous event. This is not an event that you would pass up on, which is why you had so many people in Jerusalem at this time. Now, it's also important to note that the Romans, they weren't so excited about this. They were not excited about a city of 40,000 suddenly growing to a city of 240,000. And the reason behind that is because uh, the Romans wanted to control the people. They wanted to control the, the festivities. And they were extra alert during these days, but they hated riots. Rome hated riots. And, and so when they had this many Jewish people in one place, they were greatly concerned. So that's the historical background, but there's not just a historical background to this thing. There's something else taking place on a theological level. You see, Jesus does something here that they would have been looking for in Jerusalem for a long time. Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey. Now, to us, that may seem like it's not a very big deal. But to Jews at the time, this was enormous. This is a fulfillment of a prophecy from Zechariah uh, the prophet Zechariah, and we're finding it in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Here's what it says. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly, riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. This was incredibly important to the Jewish community. The way Jesus entered Jerusalem was the same way that Solomon entered Jerusalem when he became king. And so the message communicated through these events, which fulfilled Old Testament prophecies, is that the Messianic king entered Jerusalem, God's holy city. So this was exciting for the Jews and others in the crowd. You see, they were expecting their Messiah to be a national deliverer who would reestablish the Davidic kingdom. And Jesus, well, he looked a lot like this Messiah that they were waiting for the one that was promised in the Old Testament scriptures. You see, Jesus taught with authority. He healed people, and he even raised someone from the dead. So the people welcomed him with this in mind as they prepared him, or prepared the way for the Davidic kingdom, the Davidic king entering Jerusalem. And what this means is that Jesus was entering a city during an exciting time, during a tense time, and during a potentially explosive time. There's a lot of stuff going on. I mean, the context here is rich with all kinds of meaning. 
And if you study the background, you'll understand that there were so many pieces working and weaving together. The biblical context in this section, John's gospel focuses on the Feast of Unleavened Bread that culminates in the Passover. And John begins the section this way. He says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So Jesus shows up at a place called Bethany where Lazarus was living and he spends time there. And this is the guy that Jesus raised from the dead. Now, a lot of us think, yeah, Jesus raised this guy named Lazarus from the dead. We read about that and we don't think that we hear about him again. But he's a pivotal point in this part of the story of Jesus entering Jerusalem. At Bethany, Mary anointed Jesus' feet with oil. We read that in chapter 12, verse 3. And the other gospel writers also include Jesus' head was also anointed, indicating that there was sufficient oil to anoint both Jesus' head and his feet. So that would be found in Matthew 26, verse 7, and Mark chapter 14, verse 3. And then there's this guy by the name of Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot was one of Jesus' disciples, and he got really frustrated at this point. He objects since this oil could have been sold for a full year's wages, it says, in chapter 12, verse 5. It was a precursor to the anointing of Jesus' body after his crucifixion and prior to his burial. These are Jesus' words. He says that, that she does this and it prepares his body. And so it's already a foreshadowing of what is to come. And so what you find in this context is that there's expectations and there's realities. And so I want to focus today on today on people that surrounded Jesus on that day. What were their expectations for this triumphal entry? What did Jesus do in response to those expectations? So you may ask, okay, so what do the people want? Well, when you're talking about the people, you, you got to look at the crowds and say, okay, what do the crowds of people want from Jesus at this time? Well, I'll tell you what the crowds wanted. They wanted to throw Rome out. That's it. That's what they wanted. They wanted Rome and anyone else that they would consider an oppressor gone. Someone, they wanted someone to cheer, a hero. They wanted a new king. They wanted to have the Lord praised in their city. They sang Hosanna, which means save now. And they were tired of the Roman rule and they wanted Jerusalem to be brought back into the prominence that they felt that it deserved. They saw Jesus as more of a revolutionary than one who was a savior. They saw him as a revolutionary who would ride in and take control rather than spiritually save their souls. And what did his men want? Now this one, this one is, a, is an interesting one because when you look at it, prior to Jesus' death and resurrection, you have the disciples regularly interacting with each other in a variety of ways. In Matthew chapter 18, for example, they come to Jesus and say, who's going to be greatest in the kingdom? And then a little while later, in Matthew chapter 20, you find that, that, Matt, that James and John's mother came to Jesus and asked that her sons get an office to his left and to his right when he comes into his kingdom and, and rules. And so what we find is that the disciples, some of the time, maybe not all of the time, but some of the time, they were really concerned about where they would be positionally in this new kingdom. Would they rule? Would they have power? Would they be sitting at the right and the left of Jesus? And so like any good Jewish mother, this mom of James and John wanted her sons to get ahead. 
And when the other men heard about it, Matthew says they were indignant about this, which suggests to me that they weren't so much hurt by this ask. They were more frustrated and potentially even jealous that they didn't think of it first. And then you may ask, what did the religious leaders want? These guys, if Jesus were to come today, these are the people like me. What did the religious leaders want? They wanted Jesus to keep quiet. They wanted him to calm down. They wanted him to go away. They wanted him to stop making waves. The religious leaders were concerned with one thing and one thing only, and that was status quo. Now, these religious leaders at this time, they get a lot of bad rap. And they do. Don't get me wrong. It's not like they weren't horrific things that they were doing. But one of the things that they were also trying to do was make sure that Rome was not going to slaughter the people in Jerusalem in that day. And so as much as they did slight and they felt Jesus was blasphemous, we know earlier in the chapters that they were planning for Jesus' death. We also know that they wanted these people not to be slaughtered. And so there was some genuineness in this desire for status quo, but then there's part of the status quo was also that they were the ruling religious leaders, and they didn't want anything that was going to challenge that. They wanted to stay in power, and they were feeling pressure both from above and below. Now from below, from below here was Jesus and the people who were proclaiming him king. You got this whole Lazarus incident, right, where where Lazarus is raised from the dead. We see this thing going on in Bethany. People see that Lazarus is there, and it tells us that many people were starting to believe that Jesus was the Messiah because of this event with Lazarus. So they also felt pressure from above. The disturbance continued. The Romans would come and claim that a riot had started, and no one hated riots more than Rome. They worried that the Roman authorities would take away their temple and take away their nation. So, some people wanted revolution. Some people wanted power and position. And some people wanted him silenced. So what did Jesus give them? Jesus came as a king, but one of peace, not war. His visitation this time was on a donkey, and it was to symbolize peace. He came to make peace between rebellious humanity and a loving yet holy Father, not by flinging the sword, but by allowing the sword to kill him. He came as a leader who gives power and position, who gave, sorry, who gives up power and position and dies. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 8 says it this way. In your relationships with one another, so this is the context, right? He's there that Paul is trying to tell us that in our relationships with one another, we need to be a lot more like Jesus. And so he says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, listen, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance of man. He humbled himself. By becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. And what we find there in this passage, in terms of what Jesus did, in terms of giving up position and power to be coming down to earth for us, is that we have royalty became common so that common can become royalty. Jesus became man so that man can become sons and daughters of the king, which means we are princes and princesses. 
We are royalty, adopted children. Royalty became common so that the common can become royalty. He came to upset everything and everyone in order to renew a relationship with God. He will leave this place and he will cry over Jerusalem. He'll go over into the temple area and he will flip tables, this temple that he calls a house of prayer and people turned it into a den of thieves. He is so passionate about God's kingdom and God's house. He will stand up publicly against the religious leaders and then he'll even stand up against the most powerful Roman leader in that region, Pontius Pilate. But for the purpose, but the purpose was carefully orchestrated. It was a carefully orchestrated plot to force them to kill him on the exact day in the exact manner of his choosing. You got to remember all of this was prophesied. And Jesus orchestrated everything so that it would come about in the way that he wanted it to come about. So that his mission would be accomplished. Paying the penalty, purchasing us. Paying the penalty for our sin so the relationship with the bro- that was broken with the Father in the Garden of Eden could be restored for those who trust in him and him alone for eternal life. You see that? This is what this whole thing is about. We've got all kinds of stuff happening in this context. We've got, we've got Rome. We've got the religious leaders. We've got the people. We've got this excitement of Passover. 240,000 people in the city that day bustling. All kinds of things. All kinds of celebrations taking place. And in the midst of all of this, all Jesus is thinking, all he is doing is making sure that his mission gets accomplished. The mission of paying for our sin the things that cost us to miss the mark for what God would have for us. Royalty became common so that the common can become royalty. So what does it mean to us? Sometimes we want God to just fix whatever jam we find ourselves in. And like people, like the people in this day, they saw Rome as a problem and Jesus' takeover as the solution. The real problem was sin. And the real solution was Jesus' death on the cross, his burial, and most importantly, his resurrection. So let Jesus lead you to his solution, which will likely not be the solution you wanted or even solving the problem you thought you were facing. Let Jesus take that and do with it what he says needs to get done. Sometimes we just want to be valued like Jesus' men. Uh, Some of them wanted power and position to feel important, but Jesus shows by his example that it is by giving, not receiving, that we are blessed. And further, we want to feel secure. But a feeling of security comes from knowing him, not from power and position, not from prestige, not from possession. Sometimes we don't like Jesus rocking the boat like the religious leaders didn't. We figured out our survival strategies, and and though life is far from perfect, at least we have a degree of control. We have an understanding. We have an idea of what to expect out of our lives. Jesus wants us to give up control to him. And, And think about that for a moment. Who is better at ruling your life? You? who is limited, me, who is limited. I I don't know what's going to happen five minutes from now, let alone a week from now. Or Jesus, creator of all things, 
and through him, to him, and for him, all things were made. Think about it for a moment. Jesus knows all. Why would I want to take control from him rather than give control to him? Let him shake things up in your life. Let him make changes so that you will be different, better. Uh, there's a preacher I heard, I can't remember who it was, but he says that Christianity doesn't make your life better. It makes you better at life. And I wonder an interesting thing. It doesn't necessarily make your life better, but it makes you better at life. In other words, it may not change your financial circumstances. It may not change your, your health. It could, but it may not. But what it will do is give you a better handle on how to handle those things in your life. So how about this? Honor the day that Jesus visits. Jesus approaches every single life on a donkey riding in with peace. And he's saying, let me in to cleanse and rule and reign in your heart. That's what he's saying. So Jesus is knocking. His desire is for you. His desire is for you to accept this free gift of salvation that he offers you because he is the ruler king who became common so that people like you and I move from being common to being royalty. Royalty became common so that the common can become royalty. Jesus Christ, the answer that he offers us in this life is life in him. And our hope and prayer here at Pathway Community Church is that you would find Jesus so that those of you who feel like maybe you're distant from God, maybe you feel like you're far from God, maybe you feel like God can't have anything to do with you, I want you to know that Jesus actually wants everything to do with you. Everything. And he wants you to find life in him. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you, Jesus, that, again, that you are God and we are not. And I thank you that you, as royalty, became common. You became like one of us so that we can become more like you. And that you've adopted us as sons and daughters into your kingdom for those of us who have accepted your free gift of salvation. And so, Jesus, I pray that whomever it is that's hearing this, whomever it is that's experiencing this, Lord, that they would sense from you a desire for you to be in relationship with them and that they would turn their hearts towards you. In your holy and precious name I pray, Jesus. Amen.